This is case 67 from the Shoyaloku, Book of Equanimity, the Avatamsaka Sutra's Wisdom. The introduction, a speck of, a speck of dust contains the 10,000 shapes. A single thought is endowed with the 3,000 realms. How much more so a great person crowned by heaven and standing upon earth? Or a sharp one who understands the tale when the head is mentioned. Do not disregard your own very spirit and bury your family treasure. The main case. Attention. The Avatamsaka Sutra says, As I now see all sentient beings everywhere, they are endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. But because of deluded thoughts and attachments, they do not realize it. The verse. Covered like heaven, supportive like earth, making a ball, forming a mass, permeating the Dharma realm, it's boundless, crushing the tiniest motes, it lacks an interior. Having exhausted all subtlety and minuteness, who can distinguish the pro and con? Buddhist ancestors come to repay their debt of karmic words. Ask all teacher O of Nansen and see. Every person eats a single piece of vegetable. So last Wednesday, this past Wednesday was December 8th, the day of the Buddha's enlightenment. And that morning, I sent the Sangha a short email to express the real significance and the personal responsibility that comes with acknowledging this auspicious event. So I'd like to begin this day show by turning our attention to this email, the few words from this email. So today, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha had an awakening experience which marks the inception of our wisdom tradition. The significance of this date encompasses the doubts that arose in Shakyamuni's mind, his relentless spiritual quest which led to a breakthrough experience, and his subsequent life and teachings. There are many scholarly descriptions and commentaries about Shakyamuni's life, and there are quite a few practice traditions that were established since then. However, for us as practitioners, the story of the Buddha must go beyond the historical details of his life and beyond the differences between practice traditions. The real significance of the Buddha's enlightenment is the recognition that it always boils down to today and the responsibility is always on each of us. Instead of fantasizing about enlightenment and creating conceptual images of it so we can then feverishly search for, we must seize the moment and lead an awakened life to the best of our ability today. And to do so, to the best of our ability, means to fully embrace this moment with the current personal circumstances, our personal karma, 
and the state of the world we live in. There is no other time, no other place, and no other person. We need to keep in mind that this path is a living tradition that will either thrive or will cease to exist based on the way we maintain it. So when I ended that with saying, please celebrate this day by peeling your eyes wide open and fully living and appreciating every passing moment without reservations, without judgments, without adding an ounce of extra. So Shakyamuni's spiritual journey, it happened a long time ago during a very different time and different societal and economical landscape. Yet the human condition he set foot to explore has always been the same. We have always been born to occupy a fragile body that is inevitably susceptible to sickness, aging, old death, old age and death. Right? So there's always been karma to deal with and always experienced, we always experienced endless psychological and emotional fluctuations as we travel between birth and death. The fact that in the past 2,500 years we have established ways to extend our lives, have taken major technological leaps and are able to travel in space None of it really changed the ultimate truth of living and dying as a human being. Whether we live longer or shorter is actually insignificant in comparison to the question of how we live our lives. And it doesn't change the discontent, dis-ease that we all meet this is still prevalent today as it was back then, and maybe even more so, more magnified at the times we live in. And so, in terms of examining the human condition and looking deeply at the way we function, we are working with the same fundamental aspects today as Shakyamuni did back then. His doubts that led him to step onto a spiritual journey are the same doubts that brought each of us to the practice. And these doubts are actually necessary since they give birth to bodhicitta, the way-seeking mind. And so like the Buddha, we enter the path because deep down we have, we had a sense that there is another way to be in this world. And in following his example, we also need to develop and sustain a great resolve as we engage with the practice, of course, in the face of daily challenges and powerful, powerful calm extremes. In a commentary on the Buddha's enlightenment story, Keizan Zenji says, so studying from all angles, penetrating in all ways, you should clarify the Buddha's enlightenment and your own enlightenment. I want you all to see this story closely and be able to explain it, letting the explanation flow from your own heart, not borrowing from the words of others. 
not relying on the words of others, not even relying on the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. Because for us right now, looking back, it's only a story. So Keizan Zenji takes the story of the Buddha's realization out of its historical context and puts it right in front of our face in a very relevant and intimate way. And he's saying that the only way to understand the Buddha's realization is through your own realization, which means to not go anywhere else, to stop trying to become someone else. And to fully embrace this moment as the only opportunity there is. And this is why Thich Nhat Hanh said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. There is no peace later. Nothing happens later. If we truly want to practice, we practice peace. And this statement equally applies to realization. So we can say, there is no way to realization. Realization is the way. But it does take complete, full, utter acceptance that there is no other time to realize. Which means letting go of what I think is getting in my way. Getting in my way to realization, to experience realization. So realization is not a matter of time, as we may think it is, since we are never a part of what is being realized. But because we are so deeply absorbed into a particular way of being, and so self-concerned, it takes a great deal of time and consistent determination to go against the grain and radically change the way we move through life. It doesn't have to take time, but it does take time. Not because we're not there. Mostly because of what we trust. So to work on eroding the trust that we have and establishing different kind of trust. That takes time. And it feels like going against the grain. And it's a paradigm shift in consciousness that simply doesn't come easy for most of us. It is a journey from the small, fearful, and disconnected sense of self to a vast, interconnected and all-inclusive sense of being. You can shift, adjust your position. In the Dhammapada, Eknath Eswaran writes, our everyday life, the Buddha is suggesting, is lived within an eggshell. We have no more idea of what life really is than a chicken has before it hatches. Excitement and depression, fortune and misfortune, pleasure and pain are storms in a tiny, private, shell-bound realm which we take to be the whole of existence. 
yet we can break out of this shell and enter a new world. In other words, we are very self-concerned, self-centered. <clears throat> this koan brings up a line from the Avatamsaka Sutra, also known as the flower ornament scripture. And this sutra is central to the Huayan school of Buddhism, which was active in China between the 6th and 9th centuries. The Huayan school, or the Kegon school as it is known in Japan, is focused on the aspect of interconnectedness of all things. And it illustrates this through a metaphor of Indra's net, an intricate web that has a jewel at every meeting point, and each jewel perfectly reflecting all the other jewels. It's a metaphor that shows the interpenetration of the absolute and relative, or the fundamental truth of non-duality. And we often hear about this truth, read about it, chant it on a regular basis. But do we really actually live by that truth? Or is it just one of many ideas that we create in our mountain of concepts? Most of you also heard this koan before. Maybe not as a koan, but as the first words that the Buddha spoke after his awakening. He said, as I now see it, as I now see it, or as I realize, all sentient beings everywhere, everyone, everyone is endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. Tathagata is thus come one. But because of deluded thoughts and attachments, we do not realize it. Not because we are not endowed, because we follow something else. In the awakening of faith, an essay attributed to Asvagosha, it says, original enlightenment is intrinsic, but non-enlightenment is accidental. The latter is an unactualized state of the same original enlightenment. That is to say, a person is originally enlightened or saved, but suffers because she does not realize it and continues on blindly groping for salvation elsewhere. So how, how do we hear it is the question. We, we hear these words and there's a lot of resistance in us, mostly because we look at our lives, we look at the way we are, the way we think, the way we function, and there is a discrepancy, obviously. But if we, if we judge it by the way we function, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. Or if we see it with the same eyes, hear it with the same ears, that are bound by convention, of course is going to sound beyond my capacity. So how, can, how else can we hear it? 
What about trusting it? Just trusting it. So what the Buddha realized has twofold significance. First, he experienced himself as intrinsically unified with the totality of all beings and all things. An intrinsic, intrinsic way of experiencing everyone equally or experiencing that everyone is equally endowed with what he experienced. Because if he experienced it, everyone can. And the second part is at the same time you also realized the origin of our blindness to this intrinsic nature. So he's so into who we are and at the same time he's so into how we disregard who we are. So he realized interconnectedness and the word, that word, interconnectedness, may sound somewhat foreign or difficult to fully understand. But we could just look at the, at the state of this world and the coronavirus and its mutations and, and learn from that. A few days ago, the, the head of the World Health Organization said something that sounded like it's taken from a Buddhist sutra. He said, until everyone is safe, no one is safe. Until everyone is safe, no one is safe. Regardless of opinions, borders, political affiliations, it doesn't matter. We don't matter. We and what we think is so insignificant in the face of this virus. I just last week, I think I heard one politician from a southern state, uh, a senator from a southern state, who said, real America is done with COVID. You, you can't even, I don't even know how to look at such a statement. It's like saying real America is so dumb and blind then we're just going to ignore it. We're going to pretend that we're done with this. Never mind that it is not done with us. We are done with this because we're Americans and we know best. Isn't that the message we communicate to the world? We know best. I was talking to Yogan about it and Years ago, I used to, I traveled a lot and I remember running into Canadians with a huge Canadian flag on their backpack. And I asked one of them, why do you guys walk around with this? He said, we don't want people to think we're Americans. It's real. This is what we're dealing with. So if we're not learning from this virus, and it's teaching interconnectedness of all things. And it's teaching us that as long as we are not going to be unified in the way we deal with it, 
Or we're going to argue about vaccinations. I don't want to get vaccinated. Well, great. The virus is very happy. It's going to hitchhike on you and find more people to infect. It just works this way. So we're going to dig our heels. And then what? It's not going to change anything. So until everybody is safe, no one is safe. And it's reminded me, and many of you have heard, Vimalakirti Sutra, when Vimalakirti was sick in bed, Manjushri was one of many bodhisattvas who came to visit him. And at some point during their conversation, Manjushri asked him, layman, what is the cause of your illness? Has it been with you long? How can it be cured? And Vimalakirti replied, this illness of mine is born of ignorance and feelings of attachment. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. Doesn't that sound the same? So we don't have to think about the time of the Buddha or study the sutras. We could just read the news. It's teaching the same thing. It's teaching us how interconnected we are, we are all together and also how realized we can be and how ignorant we can be. So whether we realize it or not, we're always unified by nature and therefore always liable for each other. Whether we like it or not, it's the way it is. When we are awakened to this truth, we naturally want to help and support others, naturally non-discriminating, because we are one. Einstein has had his own way of speaking of Indra's net. I'm not sure if he knew much about Indra's net, but he knew what it meant. He said, our separation from each other is an optical illusion. When something vibrates, the electrons of the entire universe resonate with it. Everything is connected. The greatest tragedy of human existence is the illusion of separateness. Isn't it the same thing? Of course it's the same thing because when we look deep, we're all going to encounter the same truth. It's not opinion-based. It has no borders. It is timeless. The Buddha did not invent. We just realized. What is? I often see it on the mat with Aikido. How different it is when, when all the body parts you move together in unison versus disjointed movement. When the body parts are 
recognized or, or are seen as one in movement, in Aikido, martial art training, there is much more power. The intensity is greater and it becomes effortless to move and to affect another person's or to destabilize another person. It becomes much easier because the arm and the leg are working together. The center, the head, the neck, the feet, everything works together. Everything has a pinpointed way of concentration, like a laser beam. It cuts through because it's together. Because the arms and the legs are not arguing with each other. It's the same when we work together as human beings. It's all the same because the laws are the same. The fundamental law of the Dharma is always the same. When human beings work together as one, it's incredible what we can accomplish. And when we fight each other, the level of harm is also as incredible. In the Sutra of Supreme Perfect Enlightenment, the Buddha says, what is ignorance? Since beginningless time, all sentient beings have had all sorts of delusions. Like a disoriented person who has lost the sense of direction. They mistake the four great elements as the attributes of their bodies and the conditioned impressions of the six senses as the attributes of their minds. They are like a person with an illness of the eyes who sees an illusory flower in the sky or a second moon. There is in reality no flower in the sky, yet the sick person mistakenly clings to it. Because of the mistaken clinging, this person is not only deluded about the intrinsic nature of the empty space, but also confused by the arising of the flower. Because of this false existence to which she clings, she remains in the turning wheel of birth and death, the wheel of samsara. Hence, this is called ignorance. This ignorance, he says, has no real substance. It is like a person in a dream. Though the person exists in the dream, when the dreamer awakens, there is nothing that can be grasped. Like an illusory flower in the sky that vanishes into empty space, one cannot say that there is a fixed place from which it vanishes. Why? Because there is no place from which it arises. Amidst the non-arising, all sentient beings deludedly perceive birth and extinction. Hence, this is called the turning wheel of birth and death. One who practices complete enlightenment realizes that birth and death are like an illusory flower in the sky. 
Thus, there is no continuous continuation of birth and death and no body or mind that, can, that is subject to birth and death. And this non-existence of birth and death and body and mind also not consequence of contrived efforts. It is so by intrinsic nature. The awareness of their non-existence, non-existence is like empty space. That which is aware of the empty space is like the appearance of the illusory flower. However, one cannot say that the nature of this awareness is non-existence. And the last line, eliminated, eliminating both existence and non-existence is in accordance with pure enlightenment. Or in other words, any creation is nothing but a creation. Or any creation is fundamentally extra. And how do we create? It starts with a thought. Or it starts with a thought that we follow. I am or I am not. Both are busy creating. You know, the the power of learning to stay is enormous. And it's also learning to stay, staying is also terrifying. Because if you truly, if we truly come back to this, to this split second, you will not find yourself. You are not, you are not here. In order to see yourself, to feel yourself, you have to abandon this. You gotta go to a thought, to emotion, to a memory, to a word. Look at it. Stay, stay, stay. This is why there's so much resistance in us to staying. Because we're terrified of staying. Because we cannot find ourselves here. We'll go anywhere, do anything, but stay here. This is why many people say, I can't, there's no way I can meditate. Meditation is not for me. My meditation is hiking, biking, sewing, whatever. Because I don't want to stop and look. Ignoring the intrinsically empty nature of all things, we fall asleep into a deep dream in which there is a separate entity we call ourselves. And that separate entity is constantly being created. It actually doesn't sustain itself. We work very hard to sustain that entity by thinking about it, by reminiscing, by futurizing, by describing it to other people, to ourselves. 
So that's the dream. And in this dream, every interaction appears to be in direct relation to this imagined entity. And every reaction is calculated based on a sense of self-preservation of that specific particular entity. So the dream provides optimal conditions for the birth of gain and loss as we try to navigate our way through what seems to be real. As long as we believe our perceptions of what we see and hear, we are totally at the mercy of what is being seen and what is being heard. This is why the Buddha said, those who seek for me in form do not see me. Those who seek for me in sound do not hear me. You can shift. And it doesn't mean that what we see or hear is, is false and needs to be ignored or rejected. It only means that we should not assign a self to sounds and forms and not identify with thoughts, sensations, emotions. When we assign a meaning to what happens, we perpetuate, of course, defensive reactivities, self-loathing, Pride, raise walls, set up divisions, and agree or disagree. All in the name of a self-concerned falsehood which keeps the dream going and the dreamer asleep. Now, assigning a fixed self to a constantly changing reality Everything that is false appears to be true and the dream feels real as the Buddha described. When we subdue the temptation to identify with what happens, everything is perceived directly as it truly is. Selfless, without ownership. If I am nothing but a dream, then everything I am and everything I believe, I believe I own, is also a part of that dream. Everything I believe to be an extension of me is an extension and continuation of that dream, which, again, keeps the dream going. In the introduction, he says, do not disregard your very own spirit and bury your family treasure. Wake up. Wake up to who you are. Do not disregard who you are by being mesmerized by the dream. Do not turn away from your intrinsic nature. And do not try to sustain yourself on false conceptions. It won't work. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work because... As in the saying, paper cakes will not satisfy one's hunger. It doesn't satisfy. 
and maintain that sense of discontentment. A dream, as, as real as it may feel, and as personal as it may appear, cannot substitute, cannot be a substitute to the richness of life. Everything, the most minute expression of life, surpasses any dream we can be immersed in, anything we can imagine. How can what we imagine be greater than what is real? So to wake up from delusion is to realize that there are no divisions. All is one. This is what the Buddha realized. All sentient beings everywhere, throughout space and time, endowed with that great wisdom and virtue. So commenting on the Buddha's first words, Master King Liang said, Sentient beings contain natural virtues as their substance and have the ocean knowledge as their source. But when forms change, the body differs. When feelings arise, knowledge is blocked. It is like a person with appearance of great full virtue and wisdom who sees himself as poor, sick, and suffering in a dream. And this is the change of form. He does not see his original body. This is the differing of body. He takes it to be his own body. This is feelings arise. He does not trust his own body to be endowed with great virtue and qualities. And this is knowledge is blocked. So not, not trusting or putting our trust in the dream. We block wisdom. And all we can do is block it from being expressed. But it, it remains intact. Whether we express it or not, or whether we realize that we express it or not, doesn't change us on a fundamental level. It doesn't change what's intrinsic. It does change what is being expressed, or the way we are expressing ourselves, our lives. And because we are one, it's going to have consequences. And everyone is endowed with the Buddha's virtue because everything is of the same nature. And so to turn Towards our true nature means to turn towards everyone and embrace everything. This is where it gets tricky for us. I'm willing to turn towards some, not towards all. And to awaken to unity, we also awaken to a great responsibility to be of service. 
it doesn't feel like a burden necessarily, or maybe sometimes it does, but in the big scheme of things, it, it cannot be a burden because you take care of you by taking care of others. So this responsibility as opposed to a chore is recognized as a natural expression of a human being. The Tagata, suchness or dustness, and the Tathagata's wisdom is the wisdom of living in accord with things as they are, or wakeful living, of course, which is only possible when we realize that everyone is included. It means that when, when, when we attend, when we take care of regular practice and grow deeper in understanding, it is affecting everyone else. So when you show up, all of us are being affected by that. When you strengthen your resolve, everyone is affected by that. When the resolve is weakened, again, everyone is affected by that. Everyone will benefit or suffer from what we do and what we avoid. This is the truth. It's the only truth we can wake, awaken to. The Avatamsaka Sutra, it says, it is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of a barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers, and fruit will all flourish. And how do we nurture that tree? By showing up, by practicing. The regal body tree growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By benefiting all beings with the water of great compassion, one can realize the flowers and fruits of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas' wisdom. Why is this? It is because by benefiting living beings with the water of great compassion, the Bodhisattva can achieve supreme perfect enlightenment. Therefore, body belongs to living beings. Without living beings, no Bodhisattva could achieve supreme perfect enlightenment. So since, the, since Shakyamuni has been dead for quite a while, this is saying that it's up to us. So with realization comes a great understanding of interconnectedness or interdependent origination, platitya samutpada, which manifests in a person's life as a deep or in a way that a person cares for all living beings. And the phrase, this dharma is equal, no high, no low, is embodied as an actionable humility. Only actionable.
The verse, covered like heaven, supportive like earth, making a ball, forming, forming a mass, permeating the Dharma realm. It's boundless. And this is versifying the vast magnanimity of our intrinsic nature, which is what the Buddha realized through his own efforts and then spent the rest of his life teaching others to do the same. Because we can. In the commentary it says, human intellect claims that sky and earth give birth to human. Buddhism, on the other hand, says that human create heaven and earth. It's a different way to, to see ourselves. We are creating and destroying or desecrating who we are or what we are by not realizing how spacious and vast we are. Crushing the tiniest motes, it lacks an interior. Having exhausted all subtlety and minuteness, who can distinguish the pro and con? Now, the Buddha's journey was not easy or smooth, but he was disciplined and relentless in going beyond thought, constantly opening up the hand of thought, the grasping hand, letting the mind exhausts itself until he realized that essentially there is nothing that can be substantiated or grasped. And this is the example we need to follow. So crushing the tiniest motes. We have to get there ourselves. We have to not violently crush anything, but allow Abandoned thought. Allow it to disintegrate by itself. And we will see that it lacks an interior. Like space. How do you measure it? How do you know up and down, right and left, forward or back? Are we different than that? Buddhist ancestors come to repay their debt of karmic words. Too much talk impairs virtue. It is said that the Buddha preached for 49 years but never said a word. It also says that the Buddha preached every day and created karma in past life. So in order to atone for this, he preaches from morning to evening. And in Zen, it is, it is said that we create a debt in past lives by speaking too much, and now we speak fervently to repay that debt. It is saying, shut up and sit for a while. Because that's exactly what the Buddha did. But don't do it because he did it. Do it because you have what it takes, because you trust. I 
ask all teacher O of Nansen and see. Every person eats a single piece of vegetable. And this is from a story about Nansen and his Dharma brother Shakuzan at the time when they were engaged in Garden Samu. Nansen picked up a piece of vegetable and told Shakuzan, this is a fine offering. Everyone should be allowed to have their fill. And Shakuzan said, he won't notice a feast of a hundred del- delicacies, let alone this vegetable. Now this is referring to one who had realization. And Nansen said, even so, everyone should taste it before they realize. Because we have to do it our own way. We have to. Nobody can sit for you. Everyone should go through that. In your own body, on your own butt, you sit. And realize there is no shortcut. And the way to, well, maybe there is a shortcut. If we are willing to give it all now, today, and be of service to others, and practice, and open our eyes and go beyond judgmental thoughts, Right now, moment by moment, go beyond mind. Go beyond whatever arises in the mind. And go directly to the person you're seeing. If you go directly to the person, you will not only see beyond your own judgmental thoughts about the person, you will see beyond the person's judgmental thoughts about you. Because it's a different kind of seeing. And it's the only way to realize who we are. Back to Einstein. A human being experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest. A kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So that's the shortcut. Which is what gives or what the Buddha so, and gave rise to, or birth to, the four immeasurables. At one point he was talking to his son, Rahula, and he said, Rahula, practice loving kindness to overcome anger. Loving kindness has the capacity to bring happiness to others without demanding anything in return. 
Here is a shortcut. Practice compassion to overcome cruelty. Compassion has the capacity to, over, to remove the suffering of others without expecting anything in return. Practice sympathetic joy to overcome hatred. Sympathetic joy arises when one rejoices over the happiness of others and wishes others well-being and success. Practice non-attachment to overcome prejudice. Non-attachment is the way of looking at all things openly and equally. This is because that is. All things are connected. Myself and others are not separate. Do not reject one thing only to chase after another. Then he said, I call these the four immeasurables. Practice them and you will become a refreshing source of vitality and happiness for others. It's very clear. Maybe not simple to maintain, but the instructions are clear. And it is an immediate shortcut which has to happen again and again and again and again on a daily basis. So today we are ending the fall angle which was devoted to seamless practice. And what, what can make the practice seamless is that, is practicing the four immeasurables, moment by moment, which is none other as, uh, this is practicing what the Buddha realized. So it's none other than living enlightened life today. Not waiting, not looking back, not looking forward, not wasting a moment, not wishing to become anything else, and taking full responsibility. Thank you.